0: That's the title of my message this morning. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Promises can be powerful, but they can also be painful when they're broken. I occasionally order things online, um, whether it's a book from Kurong or whether it's an item from eBay, and I'll order it online. And I've learned over the years it's probably not a good thing for me to do because I struggle with patience. i would be better off just going and getting the item and coming home when I want it. But sometimes I fall for the same old trap and I order something online. And When you order something online, it comes up with these three letters on the screen. They are the letters ETA, which means estimated time of arrival. And In some ways, that can be really helpful, but in other ways, for me, it can be really annoying because when I see ETA, I translate that as a promise, that when they say ETA, that my item's going to come on that day, and if there's any estimation going on, it means it's going to come earlier, not later. And so I take that to the bank as an ETA, and I expect my item to come on that particular day. And so because of my impatience, I'll be at work, generally speaking, and I'll ring Kim up at lunchtime, and I'll say, Kim, has the package arrived? And she'll say, uh, no, the package hasn't arrived. And I'll say, are you sure there's not a slip at the front door that says we need to now go pick it up at the... Um, post office because you had an insanely long shower and you couldn't hear the postie come. Uh, is it actually there? And she'll go and look and she'll say, no, that wasn't in my notes. I'm very unwise and I don't stick to the notes. so I get myself in all sorts of trouble. But she'll say, no, no, there's no note there. And so I'll go back to work and I'll think, that's okay. It must be coming in the afternoon. And so I'll work away for the rest of the day. And then I'll get home at the end of the day with a bit of a pep in my step. I walk in the front door. How is everyone? It's been a great day. And then I'll say to Kim, where's the package? And often she'll say, it hasn't arrived. And that same thing can go on day after day after day. And that item that I've spent my whole life not having, I now feel like I can't go another day without it. Has anyone, you know, feel my pain? I feel this overwhelming sympathy coming from you today. Um, it's, sorry, underwhelming sympathy coming from you today. And I think you understand that there's a little bit of irony, because I'm talking about a broken promise that can be hurtful, but that's a broken promise at a very superficial level. And I think a lot of us, depending on the item, obviously, but a lot of us have experienced broken promises at a much less superficial, a much deeper and more painful place. For some of you, it's happened in a marriage. And one day you got married and you stood next to your partner, and you held their hands, and you looked in their eyes. and It's a day you'd been dreaming of your whole life, particularly for the ladies. You're dreaming about the dress, and the day comes, and your Prince Charming's there, and your husband's there, and he's looking in your eyes, and you hold each other's hands, and you make these promises, and they're, they're a vow. They're an incredible promise. It's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To the exclusion of all others, I will lay my life down you, for you. I will commit my life to you. And when you made that vow, you meant it. But as time went on, you realised as things weren't, uh, better anymore, they were worse. And when you weren't richer anymore, you were poorer. And when you weren't, uh, healthy anymore, but your relationship was sick, the same person who stood, looked in your eyes and made that promise, checked out and walked away. That's painful. Fathers, it might have been when you started a business. You went into business and you had this idea and you're going to take the world by storm and you had a partner that you really trusted and so you went into business together and you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to do a lot of good things and you came to the day where you signed the contracts and you got out your promise pen and you wrote down your signature and you scribbled it there and then you handed your special promise pen to the other person and they took it and they scribbled their signature on the line as well and both of you committed in partnership to do everything it would take for this to succeed that you would be honest, that you would work with integrity, that you would do your part. But as time went on, you found out the other person was siphoning money, or they were slacking off, or they weren't holding up their end of the bargain, and it cost you not just financially, but it ended up costing you relationally as well. For others, it's friendship. You've been in a friendship, and you've journeyed with someone, and they promise that they will stick by you no matter what. And then they went through some tough times in life, and you journeyed with them, and you answered the call, and you visited their house, and you shared scripture, and you were a faithful friend. But then when the tide turned, and you found yourself in a similar situation, that friend kind of just evaporated. They disappeared. They were nowhere to be seen. They betrayed you. They let you down. And I can tell you today, Jesus knows exactly how that feels. Promises can be powerful but they can also be painful because broken promises hurt in our lives. So if I can give you any advice today to prepare you for life, it would be this. Get used to broken promises in a broken world. Get used to broken promises in a broken world. That might not sound like cheery advice today, but it's realistic advice that will hopefully prepare you for real life. Because so often we put all of our trust's, all of our faith in people who are fallible. We pin all of our hope on people who are in broken, imperfect, sinful people like we are. And when they let us down, our world falls apart and our lives are shattered. Now, don't get me wrong this morning. As a Christian community here today, I believe that we should do everything we can with God's help to be faithful to the promises we make to him and faithful to the promises we make to each other. But what I am trying to say today is this. That if our faith and our trust is ultimately placed in anyone or anything other than God, we are destined to be disappointed. I don't have to be a prophet this morning to prophesy into your future and prophesy that there's going to be a crash. If all of your faith and trust is ultimately placed in anyone or anything other than God. And yet there's this one set of promises that we can trust in 100%, that we can build our lives on that we know the other person making the promises will be faithful too, we can take them to the bank, and they are the promises of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, that is a Hebrew word, which means surely, it's an expression of absolute trust or confidence. And so through Jesus, the amen, the expression of absolute trust or confidence is spoken by us to the glory of God. God is faithful to his promises. At the ultimate level, he is everything we need. And so today, as we continue our series through the book of Genesis, we find ourselves at chapter 21, and today we're focusing on the first 21 verses of that chapter. And it can really be broken down into two parts verses 1 through to 7, and then verses 8 through to 21. And in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 21, we see the extraordinary, seemingly impossible promise of God come to pass in Abraham and Sarah's life. And it's a significant moment in Old Testament and salvation history. If you've been tracking with us in this series, you'll know a little bit about the promises of God that God made to Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. For the benefit of those who haven't been here for this series, I'll tell you what they were. God came to Abram and he said to him, I'm going to make your name great. You will be a great nation. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. There'll be so many of them, you won't be able to count them. And through you and through the nation you're going to become, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. God would pour out his blessing on this one man and this one nation Israel in such extraordinary ways that the blessing couldn't be contained in them, but it would overflow from Israel to be a blessing to everyone else. These were incredible promises that God made. Yet to this point in their lives, Sarah is still barren. They had no children and therefore they had no descendants. And it's been 25 years since the promise was made. Now, I've never had to wait for an item from eBay for 25 years. If I did, I reckon I'd be starting to lose hope. I'd be starting to believe that that item is never going to come. And I think that's a good thing to remember because so often we read about people like Abraham and Sarah, and we're quick to judge them for their lack of faith. But in fairness, they have been waiting a long time for the promise of God to come to pass. And in the 25 years that they've been waiting, they've doubted, They've feared, they've tried to make it happen themselves, but now God proves himself faithful and at the age of 90 years of age, Sarah gives birth to the promised son, Isaac, just in time for Abraham's 100th birthday and for him to receive a letter from the queen. This is a wonderful moment. And verses 1 and 2 point out that God's faithfulness to his promise it is so true, and it's emphasized and shown by repetition to make sure that you and I today don't miss it. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham at the very time God had promised. It took 25 years for God's promise to come to pass. Was he late? Had he failed? Did he forget what he had promised and what he had said and thought, oh no, 25 years ago I made that promise, I forgot about that? No, verses 1 and 2 make it clear at the exact time and in the exact way that he had planned, his promise came to pass just as he had said. The issue was that it wasn't when Abraham and Sarah expected it to happen. It didn't correspond with their ETA. Their expected time of arrival was 25 years earlier when Sarah was 65, not 90. And when Abraham was 75, not 100. And so they had this expectation that God would answer their prayer all the way back then. And I think this sort of highlights something about our hearts. Ever since the fall, I think we've become people who always think that we know best. In our sinful state, we think we know best. And I remember Adam and Eve placed in the garden, and God placed them in this garden, which was literally paradise. He said, look around in the garden. Everything you see is yours. You are free to walk and talk with me in the garden. You can eat anything you like, you can enjoy the animals, you can do it all, but there's just one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I ask you not to eat off. And yet the serpent comes, known as the devil. Tempted Eve and her and Adam were both deceived. And the temptation was this. If you eat from that tree, you will become like God. And so they grabbed for that fruit. And ever since, I think that's been kind of like the bent of our human hearts. That we desire to be our own God and we grab for authority and independence from God. Because deep down, we actually think that we know better. If you don't believe me, ask someone who's an employee about their employer. And you'll notice it's become an Australian sport to grumble about the people who employ us. They make me do this and they make me do that and they don't give me this and they don't give me that. And if I was the boss, things around here would be very different. In my opinion, what I reckon is this. And we think that we know best. We have the same attitude towards our parents at times. We have the same attitudes towards our church leaders. We have the same attitudes towards our friends because we think we know best We end up critiquing and grumbling and complaining and criticizing, and there are some people that have just become experts in that particular pursuit, and it doesn't only damage their life, but it damages others as well. Now, there may be some times when we do know better. There may be circumstances that we've had certain experiences, and we know what the answer may be, and some other people may not see it, and that is true, but there is one situation where that will never be true, and that's when it comes to us and God we will never know better than him because he is God and we are not. But even then, sometimes we act like we know better, don't we, than God. Well, if God's a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? If I was God, I would get rid of the suffering. My son wouldn't have diabetes. My wife wouldn't have a heart condition. If I was God, I'd answer prayer at this time and in this way. I'd do this and I'd do that and things wouldn't be such a mess. They'd be so much better around here. But the truth is, Today, you might be awfully grateful that I'm not God. Because even though I think I know best, if I was God, I can guarantee you, I would stuff it up in no time. And here's another truth this morning that might hurt. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm mighty glad that none of you are God. Because if I would stuff it up, imagine what you would do. (laughs) Because deep down, I think I know better, right? That's, That's our human heart, isn't it? That we know best. And so I'm really grateful that none of you a God, and you're really grateful that I'm not God. (laughs) That is not an appropriate time for an amen. It was one sentence earlier. It's like one of the Muppets over there. Earlier in the series, we talked about the promises of God. And the problem I highlighted then I highlighted again this morning is this, that sometimes because we think we know best, we expect God to work to our expectations. But God's faithful not to our expectations, but to his promises. God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and Sarah, not to their expectations of the promise. And we're no different. We have these expectations and we even sometimes frame it um, with the terminology that God told me that he would do this. And then when he doesn't meet our expectations in our timeline in our way, we judge God based on our expectations, not on what he's promised And then we get angry at God because he didn't do what we thought he would do. But nowhere in scripture does it say that God will meet our expectations. What he does guarantee is that he'll be faithful to his promises. And so the questions become for us today, what are you actually waiting for in your life? What are you believing for? What are the desires of your heart? And that opens up another series of questions. And that is, What? how are you actually living while you wait for those things? Are you waiting in faith, trusting God? Or are you discouraged because they haven't happened according to your timeline? Have you given up hope? Are you angry with God because he has not met your expectations? Why doesn't God answer prayers the way we expect? Why does he seem to answer some prayers and not others in the way that we expect? Well, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not God. But what I do know is this, that Isaiah 55 says that his ways are much higher than our ways. In other words, God sees and God understands things that you and I don't see and don't understand. In 2 Peter 3 8 it says, The Lord's never late. That his timing's perfect. And so when I don't understand, I need to come back and submit it again to God in prayer to trust that he is doing what he's promised he's doing, and that is that he is busy working all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose, even if we don't see it right now. Because when we don't understand, God is still faithful. That's who he is. That's his character. That's his nature. And in his own way, in his own perfect timing, he was faithful to Sarah and Abraham, if you look at verse two, it says Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him according to the promise, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now if you've been part of this series, you may have noticed throughout the series that laughter has been something that's happened a couple of times in significant moments in this story up until this time. But the time that laughter has appeared has not been a laughter of joy, it's been a laughter of mocking. If you remember in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham laughed at God when God told him he would have a son. He said he fell face down when God appeared to him. He laughed And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And he laughed to himself. He said, Come on, God, give it a spell. It's not going to happen. You promised it ages ago. It hasn't happened. In the next chapter, we remember the three visitors came to Abraham, the Lord and two angels. And they appeared to Abraham. And Sarah was doing what a lot of wives do really well. She was eavesdropping in the tent next door. And God spoke to Abram and said, when I come back in 12 months and visit you, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent and it said that she laughed to herself as she thought, after I have worn out and Abraham is his old man, will I now have this pleasure? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. 25 years ago would have been good. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen now. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh? And say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But the Lord said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah said, I didn't laugh. The Lord said, you're Sarah. I'm the omnipresent Lord. I'm everywhere. Trust me when I say, you laughed. Scoffing at God. Giving up hope, thinking this is never going to happen. It's a joke. That we'd actually hold on to these promises. But as we look at verse six today, we see that the laughter completely changes. Sarah said, God has bought me laughter. No longer laughing and they're mocking in their own strength, but God has bought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is now a laughter of pure, overflowing joy. God, you are so good. God, you are so faithful. God, you can do all things. And Isaac is born, and they name him Isaac, which ironically means he laughs. And so Isaac, every day for the rest of their lives, is a constant reminder that God laughs in the face of the supposedly impossible. And he laughed in the face of the impossible in their lives, and he does the same in ours. And so we can trust in God who is faithful, did it in their lives, he can do it in ours as well. And so the first seven verses remind us that God is faithful to his promises in his time and in his way, and so we need to trust him. But the next 13 verses show us that God is faithful even when we don't trust him in the times that we make mistakes. This ties in really well with Ray's communion talk today. If you remember back to chapter 16, Sarah and Abraham had given up hope that this promise would ever come to pass. And they decided to take it into their own hands and that they would make the promises of God and the promise of descendants come to pass in their own way. And so Sarah was barren. If you remember, she suggested to Abraham that Abraham take her slave woman, sleep with her and build a family through her. And and Abraham, like a mindless drone, just said, yes, I'll do that. And he took the slave girl and he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant and they tried to do it in their own strength, in their own time, and in their own way. You'll notice that Abraham didn't seek God in that story. He didn't pray about it for one second. He simply did what Sarah asked. And the result was that Hagar got pregnant, gave birth to Ishmael, and their expectations shifted from Sarah's son to Hagar's son. And they believed that God would bring his promises to come to pass through Ishmael. But like I said before, God's not faithful to our expectations or to our strivings. God is faithful to his promises. And his promise was that the promised child would come from Sarah. And so it's obvious that this human striving apart from him was never going to work. And so we fast forward 15 years later or 25 years later now and the consequences of their disobedience are still felt profoundly every day. Because you've got Hagar and Ishmael, and now you've got Sarah and Isaac living under the same roof, both married to Abraham, and you can see that there's all sorts of tension happening in a house, as you can imagine. There's enough tension with one husband and wife, let alone throwing in another wife, who one of them doesn't really like. You can imagine the tension going on in the house. And it's all come to a head. So we look at verse 8. It says, the child grew, that's Isaac, and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham, that's Ishmael, was mocking her son. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And so here's Ishmael uh, mocking Isaac. And the Hebrew word is a really strong word. It's the word akak, Kak, which means to make sport of to derive, to mock continually, or to scorn in contempt. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul refers back to this story, and he uses the word persecute. And so this kid Ishmael was constantly harassing and persecuting Isaac. It's clear that something very untoward is happening in this household. And it shouldn't really come as a surprise if we've followed the story. You might remember when Ishmael was conceived God went to Hagar and said that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. It's a great prophecy when you're about to have a kid, isn't it? Your kid's going to be a wild donkey of a kid. And he said that he is going to be one of those kids that everyone will be against. He will be against everyone and he will live his whole life in hostility. And so you can only imagine what this kid has been like in the household. He would be, you know, one of those hyperactive kids. One of those nasty, nagging, niggling kids. He would be a sinister kid. He'd be beating up on people. He probably never sleeps. He's out of the neighbourhood throwing rocks at old ladies. He's just causing all sorts of trouble. He's got his magnifying glass and he's frying ants and he's pulling the legs off bugs. He's just one of those kids that's always causing trouble. You might be thinking to yourself today, maybe my child's a descendant of Ishmael. And maybe he is, I don't know. But he was one of those kids and it has been going on for years in this house. And Sarah is up to here with it. She is so sick of it. Because at this stage, Ishmael is about 18 years old. How do I know that? Because I passed general mass in year seven. Just. But I know that when Ishmael was born, Abraham was 85. And when Isaac was born, he was 100. And kids were weaned for two years, but usually three And so 15 plus three, year seven general mass, is 18. And so Ishmael was around about 18 years of age. And so this 18-year-old man, to be continually mocking and persecuting a three-year-old child, probably shows you something about their character and their disposition. And Sarah's just had enough. Her son is being harassed, her precious boy. This promise has come to pass and she is sick to death of her son being mistreated and she doesn't want to share her inheritance with that little punk that's causing all the trouble. And so she comes up with this idea and she says, let's just get rid of them. Now in ancient times, a slave was entitled to the inheritance or part of the inheritance. But there was one way you could get away with that and that is that they could give it up in exchange for their freedom. And so Sarah, in this story, sees an open door, an opportunity. We get rid of that woman. We get rid of her pesky son. And at the same time, the tension's gone, but we get to keep the inheritance. It's a win, win, win. But Abraham's not really buying it. He wasn't convinced that this is the right thing to do. And in verse 11, it said, The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Yes, he's been a handful. If you've got a kid who's a handful, you know at times they can drive you bonkers, but you love them. And this is difficult for him. But God said to him, don't be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And so last time, Abraham listened to Sarah without taking it to God, and it was disastrous. But this time, he takes it to God, and God affirms what Sarah has said. And so Abraham obeys immediately. In verse 14, it says, early the next morning, first thing, he gets up. He took some food and a skin of water and he gave them to Hagar. And he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and she wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And so this would be really hard for Abraham, his son, sending him off, away, not to be seen again. But he sends him away with a promise from God. If you look at verse 13, God promises him a guarantee that he'll provide for Ishmael. He said, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. But it's through your son Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Ishmael was not the son of the promise. Ishmael was born as a result of a mistake that Abraham and Sarah made. They strive to do things in their own way. Ishmael came about through their lack of faith in the promises of God. And what I really want to highlight today is this, that even though Ishmael was conceived through a mistake, he was no mistake to God. And I think that's really important for those here today or listening on the podcast. And maybe you were born to a mum and dad who just aren't around anymore. Maybe there was a single mum, and you've never met your dad or he's let you down. Maybe your parents told you that you were unplanned, a mistake, an accident. Maybe they even said they wished you were never born. If that's you today, I want you to listen. Look at me today and listen. You're no accident. You're no mistake. You are precious. You are loved. You have been created and knitted together in your mother's womb by a God who has created you unique, a God who loves you, and a God who wants nothing more than to be in relationship with you. I think this passage highlights God's concern and love for Ishmael, that even though they may have seen him as a mistake, God didn't see him as a mistake. So in verse 14, it says that Hagar went on her way and wandered in the desert of Besheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She then walked off and sat down about a bit of bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch my son die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. But in verse 17, God heard who? Heard the boy heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. And so lift the boy up, take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation as I have promised. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. There's something profound about that, isn't there? She's there mourning, she's overwhelmed by her circumstances, she's lost hope in the promises, she doesn't know what to do, her son is thirsting to death just a short distance away and God opens her eyes and there's a well right there. How often do we get overwhelmed? How often do we lose hope? How often do we forget about the promises of God? And I think God can do the same thing. In the midst of the darkest circumstances, he wants to open our eyes to the way that he's providing right there. That he's faithful, no matter what. So God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and she filled the skin with water and she gave the boy a drink. Verse 20, God was with the boy. He wasn't abandoned as he grew up. He lived in the desert and he became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. God was with Ishmael and God loved Ishmael. He wasn't the child of promise, but this is what really hit me this week. That he wasn't the child of the promise, but if he wasn't the child of the promise, he became the target of the blessing. Because God called Abraham, he said, you'll be a great nation and what will you do? You'll be a blessing to all other nations on earth. Ishmael is becoming another nation and so he's not a child of the promise, but he's a target of the blessing of God. Because God loves him. It's really the gospel right here, isn't it? Here's this guy that's been persecuting, this boy, Isaac, and yet God says part of the calling on your life is to be a blessing to him, that he would be blessed through you. This is the gospel at work. It's a little bit like what Jesus says, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, they, that you may be children of your father in heaven, because God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I think this is really important for us to understand in the current climate, because a lot of people have pointed out that from Ishmael's line came the Arab people and in turn the Muslim faith and I've heard many Christians declare that they were a mistake and that they are our enemies but Muslims are not our enemy, they're not a mistake, they're our mission field. And if they're not in the promised line of God they are becoming targets of our blessing as we step out to share the gospel with them and with anyone else who doesn't know Jesus. Now to finish today I wouldn't do this passage justice if I didn't finish by taking you to Galatians chapter 4. Because in the Old Testament here, we have a whole lot of stuff going on in this story, but the Apostle Paul takes the spiritual truth of this story, and he then takes it into Galatians 4, and he applies the spiritual truth to our lives as New Testament Christians. I'm not going to read the whole passage today for time's sake, but you can read it in your own time. It's Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 28. And in that passage... Paul compares Hagar and Ishmael to Sarah and Isaac. Promises are powerful, but Ishmael represents those who strive in their own effort to live in the promises of God. And he compares it to being like the Old Testament law and the New Testament covenant of grace. And in the Old Testament, there are a bunch of people who had the law. And They tried to keep that law, and that's a good thing to do, but the problem was they tried to keep that law in terms of trying to earn themselves a relationship with God. If I just keep all these laws, then I will be acceptable in God's eyes. The problem is this, that the law wasn't introduced to help us build a relationship with God and earn a relationship with God. It was introduced to show us that we could never do that. The Bible makes it clear that no matter how good we are in life, we will always fall short of the glory of God. And so if we are trying to build a relationship in our own strength of ourselves, we'll never make it. And yet there's so many people in life still today who think, if I'm just a good person, if I just come to church, if I just have good values, if I just do this or that, then maybe God will accept me. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is over on the side of Ishmael it's all about what you do. It's all about striving to earn a relationship with God if I pray at a certain time, if I eat certain foods, if I meditate enough, if I knock on enough doors, I might be lucky enough to be reincarnated as a frog or I might be lucky enough to earn a relationship with God and scrape my way into heaven. But that is anti the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul in Galatians says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. We have an inheritance promised to us in Christ, but we will never receive it if we just try and strive to get there by ourselves. And so we're told to get rid of the human striving and the effort to earn a relationship with God, and we're told to replace it with trusting Him. The Bible makes it clear, no matter how hard we try, we'll always fall short if we're relying on ourselves and we'll find ourselves outside of the promises of God eternally, and Ishmael represents those people. But Isaac, on the other hand, represents those who trust in God for his promises. The promise to Abraham and Sarah didn't come to pass because they were good. We've read the story. They've made many mistakes. They've fallen short over and over again. So it didn't come to pass because they were good. It came to pass because of God's supernatural grace. No matter what happens in our life, God is faithful to his promises, and that's what we can build our life upon. Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman striving to earn a relationship with God. We're children of the free woman who receive it by grace. God promised that they would be a blessing to all nations. And that promise was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I mean, Abraham and the descendants Israel, they kept mucking it up over and over again. But it came to pass ultimately in their family line through the person of Jesus Christ, who on the cross died in your place and he died in mine and he took all of our sin and our shame and our mistakes, he took them off us and he placed them on himself and he stretched out his hands at the cross. He said, it's finished. And what he was saying is, if you put your faith in me, that the sin in your life and the punishment for that sin is finished because what I'm doing on the cross is I'm paying it for you. That's grace. That's the gospel. And when we accept Christ, it's the moment that the striving stops and it's the moment that the trusting begins. We realize that relationship with God is not about what we've done, but it's about what Christ did for us. When you receive Christ, you receive forgiveness. You come into relationship with God. You have the hope of eternal life. And I love how the Bible ends, the book of Revelation. paints this beautiful picture in the future of every tribe and every nation and every tongue, bowing down in the presence of the almighty God in everlasting peace, everlasting joy. And they are there. And you and I can be there simply because we put our faith in Jesus. The promise of God that started with Abraham was enacted by Christ and will finish with us eternally in relationship with him if we put our faith in Jesus. So I want to finish today with the question, have you put your faith in him? Because there's no one else, there's nothing else by which you can be saved. Promises are powerful. Even though we make mistakes, God is faithful. So this morning I want to encourage you to put your faith in him. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, your promises are powerful. I love that passage. that says that in Christ the answer to them is yes and amen. That we can have an exceeding abundant hope and trust, knowing with great confidence that what you've promised to us in Christ can never be taken away. It's not dependent on how good we've been or how bad we've been, and we are so thankful for that because we fall short every single day. But it's dependent on your extraordinary grace and your unmatched love. When you gave up your one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place, well, that is the most awesome message. That he not only died, but he rose again. And because of that, we can have the hope of eternal life. So Lord, we thank you for this passage today. I pray that we'd be encouraged. And as Paul points out in Galatians 4, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be children of Ishmael striving to earn a relationship with God, but we'd be children of Sarah grafted into your people, into Israel, as people who will inherit the promises of God by faith in Jesus. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to give an opportunity today if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and maybe you're going through that exhausting process of trying to strive to be better and strive to please God, and you're down on yourself all the time when you fall short. And I want to tell you today that that can stop today. That striving can cease. And the trusting can start as we put our faith and hope not in what we've done, but what Christ did. That doesn't mean that after we accept Christ, we don't strive to live for Him and to be good people. Of course we do. But we don't do it because we're trying to earn a relationship with God. We do it because we're in relationship with God. And there's an incredible peace and freedom that comes with that. I don't know everyone here today, and I don't know where you're at with God, but perhaps you've given your life to Jesus before and you've walked away, or perhaps you've never put your faith in Him. And today I want to give an opportunity. For anyone here, if that's you and you say, I want to start this relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, I want to just invite you now to lift up your hand and say, Luke, that's me. I want to start this journey. I want to accept Christ as my Lord and Saviour. If that was to be you today, it would be the most amazing moment in your life because it's not the end of the journey, it's the start of it. You can continue to walk with God in your life knowing that you are saved and you are secure in Him. So I'll ask one more time, is there anyone here today? You say, yep, yeah, look, that's me. I want to put my faith in Him today. We've had about four people over the last two weekends say, so yes, start this journey. If there's anyone here today, I just want to give you that opportunity now. Lord, I thank you for all these people, and I pray for anyone here today that has not accepted you. I pray that you continue to work in their heart, that you would prompt them by your Holy Spirit. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray today afresh that we would put our trust in you, our faith in you, knowing that you are faithful to what you've promised to us, and that's an incredibly awesome thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.